This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is a huge honor uh, to be involved in this project, and it's particularly gratifying um, to be holding our summit here at Scripps, where the legacy of Roger Revelle uh, looms large. We're obviously all indebted to him for his pioneering work on, on global warming and for founding and directing this institution for so many years. But he also stewarded a vision of collaboration here at UCSD that you know problems that are too big and, and too complex for single disciplines to solve alone, they need to be engaged differently. And his legacy uh, lives on uh, for all of us here to the present day. Now, our collaboration um, is is unique um, and was particularly exciting because it emphasized the social dimension of of climate change uh, in a way that few other projects on climate have done, really putting science, technology, behavioral change, and ethics into a shared conversation, which isn't always easy to do. Uh, but this was our, was our challenge. Now, you'll see that my slides are announcing a very different direction for our discussion right now, just in their presentation. They're very, they're, my slides are primarily provocations and images and not a lot of text um, and not a lot of uh, numbers. Now, in our case, uh, the, so, so the collaboration, uh, my, my co-author, Gina Solomon, unfortunately couldn't, couldn't be here, uh, so I'm presenting for the both of us. Um, but we had a fantastic group working with us, and Maggie Delmas will uh, follow uh, my presentation uh, with a slightly different approach to behavioral change, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, in our case, the social question in Chapter 7 really involved two major considerations, what we might call climate justice, an ethical theory of climate justice, and an emphasis on attitude and behavioral change. And I want to take each one of these uh, uh, in turn, beginning with climate justice. So our chapter was framed by the ethics of this concept um, and what we might think of as the disproportionate health uh, impact or other impacts as well on the world's poorest populations. The richest one billion people on the planet are responsible for about 50% of greenhouse gas emissions, while the poorest three billion without access to affordable fossil fuels are responsible for only about 5%. And in contrast, the bottom three billion on the planet suffer the greatest harm associated with climate change, and these effects are uh, predicted to become devastating by mid-century if we don't bend the curve. Extreme weather events, air pollution, drought, floods, soil erosion, vector-borne illness, wildfires, degraded ecosystems, and food insecurity are all linked to climate change, and the secondary effects multiply and cluster in alarming ways, falling down disproportionately on the global poor, those who are both least responsible for the causes and who are least capable of adapting to impacts and developing strategies of mitigation. The vulnerability of the bottom three billion has already produced a nomadic underclass of climate refugees, 
susceptible to the perils of human trafficking, forced labor, and the degradations of life in peri-urban slums that are swelling at a rate of 77 million people each year. In developed contexts like ours, oh, this is just a fantastic quote that I forgot to show, is the, the, the Pope linking you know, our approach to climate with the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor from the encyclical, very powerful. Now, the climate gap in developed contexts like ours is dramatic as well. Low-income urban communities of color are especially vulnerable to heat waves and higher temperature because of urban heat islands. These communities are also victim of discriminatory land use, placing them in closer proximity and vulnerable thus to the outputs of freeway infrastructure power plants and refineries. The urban poor are also vulnerable to gentrification and displacement, which is often produced in the name of climate-friendly urban resilience projects translated by private developers into mega-scale urban infill opportunities that raise rents and drive diverse underprivileged demographics out of cities, destroying their social fabric and microeconomies. So there's an ethical point here. The top one billion residents on the planet are accountable for the bulk of climate change and its effects across the world. Climate justice, as an ethical theory, demands that they, we, bear primary responsibility for mitigating the harms and urgently mobilizing a low-carbon global economy. Global uh, uh, climate justice, then, let me just, climate justice, then, should be understood as redistributing the responsibility for the common good by placing the burden on those who cause harm. Climate justice further demands that solutions cannot be dropped down upon the poor and underprivileged as if they are passive subjects. This would inflict further harm. The introduction of new climate policy and technologies must be transparent and deliberative always accommodating local needs and cultural patterns and designed to activate local capacity and long-term self-sufficiency. This is not only an ethical imperative, but a very practical one as well. Without social acceptance and buy-in from the bottom up, climate mitigation strategies are simply less effective. The research on this is clear. Climate action in sites of scarcity is best achieved through a convergence of top-down intervention through policy and provision of resources with bottom-up climate education and avenues for participatory climate action that stimulate individual and collective capacity, agency, and hope. This brings us to the next subject. Our chapter explored equitable public policy planning and strategies in urban, agricultural, and forested contexts that have advanced the redistributive uh, imperatives of climate justice. But a central claim for us is that effective strategies to fight climate change require widespread and pervasive cultural shifts in attitude and behavior. Policy and planning are essential but not enough without genuine buy-in from the bottom up. 
at all scales, from the vast canvas of public opinion to collective and individual attitudes and behavior at the neighborhood scale, where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. All the research shows that localizing climate change is the most effective way to change attitudes and behavior. And this is particularly true of disadvantaged neighborhoods plagued by poverty, violence, failing schools, and failing infrastructure, where climate can seem remote from the challenges of everyday life. Proximity matters. Research shows that disadvantaged urban populations are likelier to become engaged in climate action when they understand the linkages between climate and poverty in their own neighborhoods, and when local opportunities for participatory action with climate-scale impact are made available to them. Making the negative effects of climate change tangible and present for people, rather than something far off like melting ice caps and polar bears, understanding how precisely they are affected makes it likelier that an individual will be receptive to the concept of global climate change generally and supportive of climate-friendly public policy. So the research basically tells us to start with impact, right? explaining it, understanding it, and end with participatory action. All this research is confirmed by powerful examples across the world, many of which come from Latin America, where top-down municipal and collaborative intervention is paired with bottom-up participatory process. The, uh, the examples are fantastic. Um, from the participatory budgeting exercises in Porto Alegre, Brazil in the 1970s, to Curitiba, which these participatory activities were embedded in acupunctural green infrastructure strategies across the city, including the very first rapid bus transit system in the world, which was scaled up in Bogota at a vast scale. Bogota at the time developed the most advanced multinodal transportation system in the world, linking BRT with bike hubs and a, a vast system of ciclovia and walking paths that literally stitched that troubled city together. But it wasn't just about top-down intervention, which was essential. It was also about bottom-up participatory pedagogy. So here is Mayor Antanas Mokus modeling what proper behavior is. It's biking from place to place. He, he, he rode his bike he rode his bike everywhere. The examples from Latin America are, are dramatic and, and profound, and there's so many of them. Medellin, Colombia, now the world model of, of a city investing in progressive infrastructure in the poorest zones of the city. But the thing about Medellin is it's not just about the top-down infrastructure. They invested massively in public education and civic participation. This is the Explorer Museum, which was built in the neighborhood of Moravia, the poorest city, the poorest neighborhood in the city. It's a science museum right in the middle of this, of this neighborhood. You know, participatory activity in Medellin was essential. I want to end just with a moment's thought on the, uh, the role of the public uh, university. Uh, and Doug mentioned local partnerships. There's, there's another kind of partnership that I wanted uh, to mention. We here at UC San Diego are particularly proud 
of the Community Stations Initiative, which is a network of research and teaching hubs that we have developed in partnership with local nonprofits throughout the San Diego and Tijuana region, partnering with local nonprofits and local school districts to lead climate education programs and participatory climate action at neighborhood scale. Here, for example, is UC San Diego's system. The one at the top is the Earth Lab community station based in Encanto, which is a low-income community of color in southeast San Diego situated along the city's most polluted waterway. Encanto is emblematic of many inner-city neighborhoods in the U.S. whose physical and social fabric has been disrupted by the imposition of freeway systems, preemptive water management systems, utility easements, discriminatory land use policy, and so forth. This is a rendering of the expansion of the UCSD Earth Lab Community Station right now. It's an outdoor civic classroom of four acres, replete with community gardens, solar houses, water harvesting facilities, an energy nanogrid, and other environmental sustainability infrastructures designed in collaboration with UC researchers and, and students. Hundreds of low-income students cycle through the Earth Lab each year with their families, learning about climate justice and doing climate action in very tangible ways. My point is that this kind of local engagement is something that universities everywhere can do to activate our public mission. We can all partner with local organizations and work on climate education and climate action in our own neighborhoods. This is when we're building in Tijuana as well. Anyway, okay. I'll turn things over to Megali now. Thank you. So I'm, I'm really, really uh, um, excited to be here and to, uh, to see so many people from so many fields actually you know, working on the same issue. So uh, I've been tasked to give some uh, examples on how we can use information uh, to change behavior with some uh, experiments that we've been conducting at uh, UCLA. So I think the bigger, the bigger question that we're, we're asking is how to frame climate change in a way that people who actually care about it and will take action. And we all think that here in this room that climate change is important, but in most of the cases, the impact of climate change seems quite intangible to people. So how to make them more tangible, how to get people to care more uh, about, about climate change and take action. So I think there are two uh, things that will help us to to do this is the first one is the advent of uh, information technology with the ability to reduce the cost of provi providing information about the impacts of climate change. So that's one thing. The second one is really something that actually we've been talking about a lot, you know, kind of uh, when, when um, uh, working on this chapter is the impact on health. And health seems very tangible to many people. And translating climate change in terms of health impact uh, might be a way to make it more tangible. So this is what I'm going to uh, talk about here. Use me to click. Okay, I'm going to click it. Okay, so this is uh, also what I want to mention is, you know, this type of research uh, is, is, uh, is collaborative with people working on the technology and people working on the social sciences. Um, so... The, the, the example I'm going to uh, talk about is about energy and cons uh, energy conservation behavior. So the question we're asking is, how can we uh, use information to motivate households to uh, conserve energy? 
And what we've done is, is use some you know, information technologies and providing people with real-time appliance-level information about their energy use and see how we can frame the information in a way that they actually take action and reduce their electricity usage. And we have used several framings. I'm going to talk about them here. But really, uh, we're kind of comparing a health framing where we tell people about the impact of energy use on health. And we compare that to a more traditional, conventional uh, framing, which is to tell people that you know, you save energy to save money. And so we're going to look at what's, what do people respond to. So this has been a little bit lost in translation in, in the slide making. But um, uh, what, you know, the model we're using, and I think it's important to kind of go through these steps, is to say, well, you know, the first thing that, and we've talked, I mean, some of the other uh, uh, um, you know, presenters have, have mentioned that the importance, and Dan was mentioning this, the importance of actually being able to measure. What's the problem? Where are we? So in terms of energy consumption, you know, you need to see, okay, you realize that there is a problem. I'm consuming way more than I should. I'm consuming way more than, you know, uh, I, I could do better. Uh, and that's the realization uh, to influence the problem. I can have an impact. Sometimes when we think about climate change, we don't really think about, I mean, we're not sure what we can do as individuals. So I think these are two very important uh, conditions. But then you could very well say, well, you know, I'm consuming too much, first point. Yes, I can do something about it. And then stop there, because I don't care. So the third important, uh, you know, and that's, where we, we, that's what we work on in terms of the messaging, the framing, is what are the motivations for people to actually you know, uh, change their behavior? Could be personal values. I really care about these issues. It could be social norms. This is because my neighbor is doing it. All my neighbors are doing it. I'm the only one not doing it. It could be pecuniary incentives. So these are kind of some of the framing. And the one that we're going to discuss more is, is health. And then this is turning, you know, taking action, turning lights, uh, driving a, a hybrid car. I mean, all of these different things we can do. So we're going to kind of compare different types of, of motivations through framing. So in these experiments we're conducting, we're providing real-time appliance-level uh, uh, information to our participants. Um, this is done you know, in conjunction with uh, some of our electrical engineering uh, engineers and you know, probably something that all of us in a few years will have access to. We'll have these devices that will tell us uh, everything about heating and cooling. And the idea being that, you know, right now when you receive your electricity bill, it's like going to a grocery store and you get a bill at the end of the month, but you don't really know uh, what you bought. If, you know, your caviar was more expensive than the eggs, you don't know because you don't, just don't know. So you don't know if you're, you know, how much your plasma TV or, versus, you know, your lights are using. So we're providing this information. So that's the first important condition, measurement. You can't, you know, take action if you don't have the measurement. But what we're saying is that it might, might not be enough. So the first experiment uh, that we did at UCLA, that was in the residence hall. So as uh, Nurit Katz, our uh, chief sustainability officer, would tell us, we have at UCLA 70,000 people who are living, you know, every day. And so we can use our campuses to, to do these labs, and, and we had some examples previously. So the first experiment we did in the dorms, we provided students with this real-time appliance-level information, and we were so excited about our new website and everything, and we were like, yes, this is going to work out. They're going to do something. They did nothing. <laughs> that was very disappointing. That was, we gave them information, but we forgot the motivation. So on the second phase of the experiment, we changed our, the way we framed the information. We put some posters with red dots for those who were consuming above average, 
and green dots for those who were consuming below average. They loved it, they competed, and they reduced by 20% their electricity usage. We found a way to motivate them. So that's the first experiment we conducted. The second experiment, we con so with public information, the second experiment is comparing financial uh, information, I mean, cost of, of using electricity to health. And we believe that you know, very few people know about the impact of electricity usage on health. Where I'm, I'm using here a computer, it's super clean. Um, you know, if I'm driving an electric car, it looks really clean because the production of, uh, of electricity is often in a different place than the actual consumption. So I want to say, you know, what, what will happen if we tell people actually about the impact on health? So this is a, another uh, experimental site uh, at uh, University Village. We have 120 apartments. We equipped with uh, this real-time appliance level information. It's a great site because everybody it's, has the same home, the same you know, microwave, the same fridge. Um, it's, they are renting, and they are our family students. It's also a great site because it's located uh, just uh, you know, on these two sides of 405. <clears throat> great for randomization, and that's where all, not all UC campuses are born equal. Uh, some of our students face the 405 as their views. Others uh, here, I could tell, uh, see the ocean and can go surfing. <laughs> But that's why they might care a bit more about air pollution here. Um, so this is the type of you know, information we provided. So we had different framing. We would t tell people here in the um, health framing, uh, you know, last week you used X percent more than the most efficient user in your complex. This corresponds to X pounds of air pollutants, which have been known to cause childhood asthma and cancer. So... That was one framing, and we would provide information. They could go and have a lot of more uh, information comparison by day, month, and, and time of the day. The other uh, framing was, last week you used 20% more electricity than your uh, most efficient neighbor. This corresponds to $26 more over one year. Which one you think was the most uh, effective? Health? Financial? Health. Yeah, the numbers are really small, and that's what we have to work with. The numbers in terms of the actual savings are really small. So that's some people said, really? I can, I, this is all I, I will save. And we found that the uh, second message was way, way more, more effective. So uh, we have some information here about how people went to the website. But in the end, so we found that people reduced in blue so that the health group reduced by 8% their usage. The red, the red was not significant. And household with children, since we had a message about children, uh, childhood asthma was way more effective. So that's kind of an example where we see the importance of framing uh, to, you know, kind of the same issue could have a very different impact on, you know, kind of a consumption if you have, you know, different framing. And health being, in that case, seemed to be uh, very, very effective. Um, we did, uh, you know, you might say oh, our students are, you know, kind of, uh, you know, are not representative. We are trying to find other sites to reproduce this. We did uh, uh, in Triple ITD in New Delhi, India, uh, uh, the same experiment, and surprisingly, we did, you know, find the exact same results. Uh, a 20% actual reduction for the group that received the treatment about health. Um, and so uh, we thought that was kind of uh, uh, interesting. Just to uh, you know, conclude, so we are, we're working in this area of using information to uh, uh, change behavior with different framing. 
And so our next, you know, kind of our last experiment is using an app that just came out on Friday. So I'm just going to talk about it, in, you know, for a few seconds, where we talk to people about the impact, uh, you know, air quality uh, in, in real time, air quality information. And I think this is in, important because we kind of forget this relationship between, you know, climate change and air pollution and health. So we're trying to do this in, at different levels. And this is a research project where we'll actually see how people respond to the information and we'll uh, measure that. So I think I'm within my 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Let's have time for one quick question. We are running a little over. Question in the back. Yeah, um, I, I'm just curious, given the, the power we've seen in the anti-littering and the recycling efforts in previous decades that children really pushed, um, did, did you look at how to engage children in helping move the messaging forward? I mean, clearly, they have, they have the power of most households, frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think you're right. That's a very important point. The, the families, I mean, the, in that specific context, the children are, are often uh, toddlers. They are, they are really small. Uh, but you're right. You know, the, the, I think what, what I have seen is a big change in the undergraduate students that we are seeing. They have been through, you know, elementary school to, I mean, you know, middle school, high school, to very different, I think, awareness and exposure to uh, sustainability issues. And they kind of are way, way more interested in working on these issues. So we see a big change. And I think, you know, uh, the... Uh, the school system has a big role to play as we, uh, you know, are in the uh, you know, university system at the higher education level. But I agree, yeah. Let's thank our speakers again. We're going to continue this uh, topic because it's clearly a very high-priority one and, and very challenging, the, the question of of communicating the urgency of, um, of climate change and the need to mitigate it to broad audiences. And to do so, we're going to call now on Tony Barnowski from UC Berkeley and uh, Tini Matlock from UC Merced. Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, communication. I think that We've all seen today there are lots of great solutions out there. There are lots of great policies. Um, so why isn't it happening? And I think we all know the answer, that the word just hasn't gotten out there in the right way, either in terms of um, the necessity or the urgency. So we, uh, Tini and myself and our co-authors on this chapter, have really a pretty simple message that we have to do a lot better job of communicating. We've got some suggestions on how we might do that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because it's not like we haven't been communicating. Um, we've known about this problem for 50 years or more. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was talking about climate change, about CO2 in the air in 1965. In 1988, there was a congressional hearing. Washington was sweltering. Steve Schneider, Jim Hansen were testifying to the Senate about climate change. 
um, 2006, we see this cover of Time magazine after another set of watershed climate incidents, including Hurricane Katrina the year before. So, you know, we know about this stuff, or we think we do. But in fact, latest surveys give you information like this. This is from the um, Yale Project on Climate Change Communication and, and their partner, George uh, Mason University, a Six Americas study, where they identified that if we just look at the United States, um, less than half of, the, of people in the U.S. think climate change is a problem urgent enough to do anything about. Um, only about half the people in the U.S. Um, think that humans cause climate change. So that's why we're not moving the needle very much. The sense of urgency just isn't there. If you look at what's going on in the rest of the world, um, you know, it's pretty clear that when people are just trying to literally get by from day to day, they're not thinking too much about climate change tomorrow, and that explains why in places like Bangladesh, Egypt, uh, and similar developing countries, less than 35% of adults have even heard of climate change. So that's the barrier we have to overcome. Interestingly, we don't have to overcome it at the top anymore, at least uh, in some very um, powerful circumstances. I've been in this business for about 20, almost 30 years now, and it's only been in the past five years that we're seeing the leaders of the top producing, uh, top emissions producing countries actually saying in no uncertain terms, climate change is a problem, we have to fix it. Um, President Xi in China, uh, President Obama. Um, here in California, Governor Brown has been a huge uh, moving force in this. The under two MOU has now agreements from, uh, I think last count was about 49 different subnationals. If you put those all together, that would be, and pretended they were a country, that would be the third most polluting country in the world. So we've got one, two, three. Um, things are happening, uh, and you know, as as Ram pointed out this morning, religious leaders are now taking this on. He's um, been communicating with Pope Francis. I've had many other scientists. It's not only um, Catholics. This uh, picture here is of um, His All Holiness Bartholomew the First. Uh, who is being presented there a scientific consensus statement on climate change and other issues, and he's, he's issued encyclicals, as have most other religious leaders of major religions. So people at the top get it, um, even people at the top that you don't expect. The military is so on board with this stuff, you can't believe it. We've talked to national security advisors uh, with think tanks in Washington, and the attitude in the military at the highest levels is climate change is the biggest national security threat we now face. Um, and, you know, these guys get it. I love this quote about responding to uncertainty about climate change. If you wait until you have 100% certainty on the battlefield, something bad's going to happen. And, and that's, you know, that's our battlefield. Um, so... Here's the issue. The disconnect is with the general public. People at the top can't 
do everything they want to do if the general public, their constituencies, aren't on board with it. Um, and there are several key messages that we have to be better at getting across, okay? Quickly. Um, message number one, climate disruption is real. We now know that. Uh, it's caused by humans. We know what causes it, fossil fuels. We have to change over our uh, stationary energy systems and our transportation systems um, to become greenhouse gas neutral. We've heard how we can do that. Um, the other thing is it's not something on, out in the future anymore. It's happening. Just a few fairly recent news articles. The one on the left there, the most powerful hurricane coming up and developing faster than anybody ever expected was just a couple of days ago off the coast of Mexico. Warmer waters, warmer atmosphere, more energy, more intense <laughs> storms. Over the past uh, 10 years, there have been more billion-dollar weather disasters, extreme weather events, in the United States than has been averaged for any 10-year period in record-keeping. So it's happening, and it's costing us money. Um, you know, unexpected ways, people can't get insurance, insurance rates are going up, and it's costing lives. Every continent in the world over this past year, except Antarctica, has experienced heat waves that have killed people. And I just picked one out of many news articles there to put on this slide from Karachi, Pakistan. Um, Okay, and then the other message. If we don't fix it, our lives are going to get worse. Um, new study came out at uh, Berkeley and Stanford a couple of days ago. Um, you're going to be about 23% poorer if we don't do something about climate change. That's, that's the finding of this latest study. Um, we're all worried about the Syrian refugee crisis that's flooding Europe right now what people haven't connected but are beginning to connect is things like the Arab Spring uprising, things like the uh, political unrest that is causing, allowing ISIS to develop strongholds. Climate change contributes to that by contributing to food insecurity, droughts, and so on uh, that destabilize nations. This is why the U.S. military is, is concerned. Okay. So those are, the, you know, those are the bad news stories, but the reality is we can fix this stuff. We know how to do it. Uh, you know, if we build all these machines, uh, problem solved, okay, more or less. Um, big numbers, but think about this. Just in the U.S., we built enough road to go around the equator twice in the last 50 years, we, built, we dammed 60% of the big rivers in the world, worldwide. So the technology and building the technology is not a problem. Um, and we also have a responsibility to the developing world to bring energy use up to standards uh, that allow a good standard of living. Know how to do that, too. This is a, a hospital at the base of Mount Everest, um, it's run entirely on solar and micro-hydro, state-of-the-art operating room. So 
we know, again, how to leapfrog over, and this is something that uh, can be helped. So, you know, these are messages that are not getting out there, and part of the reason they're not getting out there is we're shooting to the wrong part of the distribution. We have lots of ways of delivering these um, messages, but as, as somebody mentioned earlier, a certain proportion of any population are free riders. They're not going to do anything that isn't good for them. Um, so forget about them. That's about 20% of any population. Altruists are, you know, like us in this room. We see the common good. That's about 20%. Forget about them, too. They're on board. What we need are those 60% in the middle. And that 60% in the middle is made up of a lot of different groups, so one size doesn't fit all. Um, and we also know how to get to them, which, which Taney can tell you about now. Thank you, Tony. Let's go back to that disconnect for a second. So there's 60% of those people who aren't getting the message. How can we do better? First and foremost, it's, it's important to think about we're all human. We have a brain. Uh, we use our brains individually. We use our brains in groups. What can influence those brains? Language, communication, messages. So communication is an extremely important part of this larger problem. Some solutions. We don't have enough time to talk about a lot of specific solutions along the communications vector right now, but we'll talk about a few. It's very important to develop effective communication strategies. And one of the things we mentioned in our executive summary very close, very uh, short, briefly is that um, it's important to foster a global culture of climate action through coordinated public communication and education. And this is at all levels, local, global. It's also important to combine technology and policy solutions with innovative approaches to changing social attitudes and behavior. Again, we need language to do this. We need communication strategies that are effective. Okay, one important part of communicating effectively is framing. So this is all about persuading someone, especially when people are on the fence, they're not really certain if they want to commit or what decisions they want to make at the end of the day, if and when they want to take action, what those actions will be, and so on. Um, one part of framing involves the wording of that message. So you formulate a sentence as a speaker or a writer. You put that message out there. You're putting words together. You're concatenating different meanings together. Um, that's one important part of framing. Another important part is grammar. So some of the work I've done looks at uh, the use of grammar in political messages. You can actually convince somebody not to vote a particular way by using a certain past tense form and so on. So sometimes the messages we formulate, um, even the very low-level details, the tiny, seemingly microscopic details, can matter a lot. It's important to do the science work to look at how communication can be optimal and so on. And then last, there are certain rhetorical tools that you can use that will help the general public understand complex, abstract, difficult issues around climate 
issues. So for example, titanic struggle is one term that uh, Jerry Brown was using recently. And so a very popular metaphor. And today, in this very room, we've heard hundreds of metaphors being used to talk about climate change. Also with framing, it's not just the verbal message, it's those images. Okay, so if we're talking about extreme events, right, we could show a, a beautiful billowing smoke cloud on the horizon. Is that a good message to show when there's disaster and hundreds of homes burning or the risk of that? Maybe not. Or how about glowing embers in a large forest fire? Beautiful depictions. Maybe that's not so good either, right? But maybe it's best to show devastation, pictures of burnt forests and so on. These are questions that we can explore and find answers to. Another important part of communication, communicating about climate that's very important is knowing your audience. This is something we all heard in elementary school, high school, in undergrad years and so on. But it's a really important thing to go back to in formulating climate messages, whether we're social scientists, hydrologists, or whatever we are. We need to think about not just the audience, because a one-size-fits-all message often doesn't work. We have to think about audiences. There are different religions, different cultural groups. In California alone, there are many different languages that are spoken. In the world, there are 7,000 languages spoken. Not everyone in California, in the nation, or on this planet speaks English. So we as scientists, to get those messages out there, to have them be effective, and to have them reach all stakeholders, we need to think about the use of different languages as well. In California alone, over 44% uh, people speak Spanish in the home. Um, another solution we can think about here for a minute is ways to connect with our community. Um, in the UC alone, we're doing a pretty good job of this. You see more and more efforts popping up on the 10 campuses that are educating and doing outreach events. Um, so at UC Berkeley alone, there's uh, the Museum of Paleontology, and they offer these wonderful short-term courses for the general public, and one is on global change. These kinds of efforts are great because they help get the message out there and they engage the general public. At UC Merced, our newest campus, two years ago, we formed the Center for Climate Communication. It's the only one uh, like, like that on the West Coast. And we um, hold events to educate the general public. We have public talks, and we involve, involve, invite all the community, and we post our talks on a website. Um, other outreach educational sorts of things. UC Santa Barbara has a no number of efforts going on. One of them is a Blue Horizons program run through the Environmental Media Initiative. So people who engage in that program create documentaries and, and uh, popular media sorts of things about the environment. And then, of course, we have UCTV as well. Okay, the way forward... Some final thoughts here. Um, so we have the science, we have the technology, the expertise. We have a number of workable policy ideas. Things are feasible, right? But we need to do better in terms of communication. We need a more targeted way to communicate within UC, 
within California, in the nation, in the world. We need to communicate a sense of urgency, so we need to think very carefully about how to frame those messages. We need to communicate that it's feasible, that we really can achieve these goals. It goes to optimism there. But at the same time, conveying how bad things might be if we don't do something soon, right now. And then last, that social tipping point. We need good scientific research on how do we convince people, how do we convey these messages and find that place in a single individual and in a group of individuals that will cause them to think about something in a different way. Thank you. Thank you, Tini and Tony. We have time for a couple of quick questions. Yes, wait for the microphone. Hi there. Thanks for your uh, presentation. My question is about the tools in communication that you're using. These are some of the same tools that the opposing lobby is also utilizing to communicate their message. So my question is, how, how do you make the differentiation between the message that, that we might be conveying versus um, the false science that they're projecting? Would you like? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, you might have noticed on, on one of those slides, we had a, a list of, of um, venues for communication, and one was countering disinformation, right? So the other side has been really, really good uh, at having a targeted message, at putting things in terms that people will respond to, that sort of, you know, hits home. Um, the problem is the other side lies. <laughs> um, so, so I think we can actually learn something uh, from the disinformation campaign, and that is direct, simple, targeted. Uh, but we do have to be constrained by the truth, right? Um, up until now something I think that has really been inhibiting the messages about climate change are the uncertainties that are associated with anything like predicting the future um, and thinking about levels of risk. Um, so I think we can do a better job about emphasizing what we do know rather than what we don't know and I think we can do a better job of framing what risks really are. So, for example, you know, we talk about a 66% risk of uh, temperature rising by 4.8 degrees Celsius in X number of years. And you say, uh, well, 66%, I can probably live with that. But if you sort of think about it, would I get on an airplane if there was a 66% chance it was going to crash? Your answer is no, right? So I, I think those are the ways we can be better. We have another question here. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Bonnie Reese on UC Board of Regents. Um, in 2000, in the year 2000, there was maybe an eight-point percentage difference between how Republicans in the United States versus Democrats thought of this. Now there's a 54% difference. So when you talk about targeting groups, um, it's at the point where it's not just what the message is, because you say, we have to, what's one message? Humans are causing climate change, um, and we have solutions. But 
it's at the point now because we're so motivated by our tribe and our who who, who our peers are that overwhelmingly 50% of the the number you said 50% in the United States don't believe it's human caused that 100 scientific studies signed off by 99.99% of scientists isn't going to move that group. So have we looked at um, not just the message, but the messengers that are most likely to turn some of those embedded tribes people in our country around on this? That's one question. The second question I have is that the uh, political leaders and others that are now trying to stop progress on policies on climate in this country are now mostly not going on that there's no climate change. Now they're mostly, we can't afford it, the economic and job cost. So the two questions are, one, how do we get to that targeted group that will look at any UC brilliant researcher as a liberal elite and not want to listen to them? Uh, You talk about targeting media. Well, Fox doesn't care, so what media? Um, you know, so how do we get to that group with a 50% that don't believe in the United States live and change their point of view? Have we looked at that? And then the second question is, how do we best get the message out based on the experience in California alone that you can address this, reduce greenhouse gases, and have economic growth and job yeah. growth? Do you want me to do one? And yeah, yeah, go ahead. Do go ahead. Two? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do one briefly. Um, One thing I do in communicating about climate stuff, and I encourage other people to do this as well, is to disarm anybody of the politics of it. It's really hard. But once you say people shouldn't polarize, that gets in the way of communicating about the key issues and what should be done. And don't assign blame. You know, let's just move forward. It's happening now. For whatever reason, let's move forward. And sometimes... People will be more open to a message once you say, let's, let's not talk about it in terms of political terms or necessarily, necessarily align with a political group. Let's all work together to find better solutions. So that's one approach that may help on some level. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And uh, I'd also add that um, the messenger is really, really important. So, for example... Um, with the national security folks. Uh, we've, we've done some talking to a think tank in, in D.C. It's called the CNA Corporation. CNA doesn't stand for anything, but uh, they, they advise um, the Pentagon and the White House on, on uh, various security issues and, and climate change being one of them. This group is made up of the past commanders of the armed forces. I'm talking army chief of staff, um, that level. Um, and at, at one point, you know, we said, well, what, you know, why don't one of you guys come out to California and, and, and give a talk on this? And the answer was, we don't go to places like California because they're already on board. We go to Tennessee. Texas. So who's delivering that message is huge. Um, As far as the economic question you asked, um, there, and and I'm sure Dan Kamen can speak to this even better than I could, but the message is really going green energy is a jobs generator. It's an investment generator. Um, It's more return on investment. So 
so, so the statistics actually point out that fossil fuels are not the way to go anymore. And we, we, we have to be better at communicating that to our, our friends who look at it in economic terms. Thank you. And Bonnie, thank you for that very perceptive, important question. Uh, we, um, let's thank our speakers. Tini. Okay, we, uh, we're almost there, folks. Um, two more talks. Uh, two more uh, brief talks. Uh, one first by uh, Byron Washam, who uh, is my colleague on the uh, program chair, along with uh, Matt St. Clair, who is here. Byron's going to talk to us about, uh, he's going to summarize some of the big challenges that we've been addressing, and then uh, we'll follow that with uh, uh, Susanna Hecht, who's going to talk about the natural ecosystem, especially the issue of how we need to encompass that natural system, forests especially, into our total picture of what we're doing with the planet and greenhouse gas emissions and absorption. Thank you very much, Dave. As a uh, wrap-up speaker, I'd like to blend a number of things that uh, slides that you've already seen today. You saw Rachel's uh, uh, presentation earlier, uh, where the goals are and where we need to get by 2025. And we didn't have a line that went from where we are down to there. Rom mentioned this morning where we had two segments of between now and 2030 and the segment of 2030 to 2015, which will be the, the, the area of my focus in this presentation. But every single presentation had a contributing factor to what I'd like to share with you. And that is, what are the challenges of scaling a reduction of our carbon emissions by 80% by 2015? And this is, uh, very simply put, in a technology push of accelerating technology as well as a market pull of embracing that very same technology. This is a vision of the future. Distributed generation, uh, energy storage, car sharing, a whole variety of different technologies that perform in an orchestrated fashion to provide the different um, <clears throat> supply, the demand, the storage, the demand response, all the composites of what makes an orchestrated, optimized, harmonized grid. And for, for those of you who went on the microgrid tour, here's a 10-second view of a DC fast charger, 5, uh, 5 megawatt hours of energy storage, electric chillers locally produced, compressed natural gas or biogas for transportation, uh, directed biogas fuel cell, all within a thermal energy storage to provide uh, local district heating and cooling. This is an idea of just showing what is the art of the possible with present technology. But as Scott Samuelson mentioned, that we have maturing technology, and we've seen volume curves that will drive down the price. We have to go far beyond that. If we look at Denmark, on the left is the slide of Denmark. Their distributed generation is very little, and centralized generation is very large. Fifteen years later, in 2009, you see all the different points of distributed generation. It looks like the country caught the measles. I contend that this is exactly what California, 
the United States and the world will look like within 15 years. I'm surprised, very much surprised, that I'm one of the last speakers of the day and nobody has previously shown the duck curve. The duck curve is a phenomena where with the increase in renewable portfolio standards, we'll actually see during the middle of the day a reduction <clears throat> in the demand for uh, conventional generation. It has to actually draw back. And so rather than curtail that surplus of electricity being generated by renewables, what we want to do is find load sinks, be it production of hydrogen, be it production of desalination, but find these load sinks that can bring a new use into play. So I forever want to be known as the man who invented the EV happy hour. <laughs> it needs no explanation. When you have a surplus, you have flex charging. And that's exactly when you want to charge your EVs. But we will see, and this is a little contrarian to previous papers, we will see a serial disruptive and transformative technologies in all fields of innovation. And here is a business model from the computer industry that you notice the different lines don't overlap. They don't feed into each other. You progressively go on. It's a stair step. I contend this is exactly what we'll see in the different technologies that we're looking for in the 2030 to 2050 timeframe. And then what we need is market pull. Whether it's non-price incentives like we just heard about, or whether it's price incentives where it's market regulations, the second part of this curve is very important. It didn't show up on this slide. But it's a normal bell-shaped curve that goes the entire bandwidth of this. And that's the normal market maturation. We simply do not have time for the normal maturation. We must find accelerants to the market pull of accepting this technology far beyond price. And that creates things like the red curve on the left. And that is where you have what we call the Big Bang market adoption. In 2010, in November 2010, was the first commercial sale of an Apple iPad. 50 years ago, I mean five years ago. Over 200 million have been sold. Apple originally had 67% of the market. They now have 27%. Competition, innovation, technology, big bang. We need a big bang. And in the audience today is Nancy Skinner. While she was in the legislature, she introduced AB 2514 which required 1.2 gigawatts of energy storage to be installed. Southern California Edison, in response to this, put out a request for a proposal for 60 megawatts of something they didn't particularly want to buy 60 megawatts of. After the bids were reviewed, they selected 260 
megawatts of energy storage. Almost four times the amount requested. Why? Because the presentation of the packaging of energy storage, its variety of uses, its financing options, really unveiled, or as some would say, took off their blinders as the way they approached energy storage. Of that, only 163 of those 260 megawatts are for the utilities. The balance is for behind the meter. That is a big bang. That was created by legislation and regulation, but it, as you could have seen in the microgrid tour today, that was an example of the art of the possible. And that's exactly what we need in the future. Thank you. Since we have two different topics here, um, I think it would be appropriate to take some questions first for Byron, and then we'll move to Susanna's talk. So you go back to the over there. (laughs) Questions for Byron? Big bang question. In the back. Yes, a big bang question. Uh, um, Coming, my name is Robin Raj from the area of uh, communications, and um, I would just make the observation that that presentation pertaining to the Big Bang, to me, embedded within that is the basis for a communication strategy. Perhaps the first one, you know, I, I've heard whereby it can move the market and we can get strategic about audience definition, audience strategies, because for much of the talk talking about messages, messages and messengers segmenting our audience with a directed purpose um, around the acceleration there. And um, I won't bore you with stories, but I, I had worked at the agency that worked for Apple, and uh, there was a period of time when Apple was at 1% <laughs> market penetration to, uh, to Microsoft. But uh, with the product innovation, but then with the combination of product and communication, uh, you know, we've seen transformation. Clearly, the product innovation is here, but the communication is, uh, needs to be commensurate with it. And I just make that observation. Okay. I think Nancy had a question here. Yes, Nancy. Is there another either policy driver or technology that you can uh, imagine or speculate for us that could create this kind of big bang? Um, I would go back to uh, Scott Samuelson uh, blurred list of I think he had 13 different um, uh, items of and every single one of them have multiple technologies in them and the portfolio approach is really diversification of your generation resources diversification of your energy storage resources big small variety diversification of electric or hydrogen um, uh, cars, diversification of uh, your energy efficiency devices, on and on and on. Diversification brings four things. Reliability, survivability, resiliency, and safety. And here at UC San Diego, what wasn't mentioned at 
we produce our electricity at half the pr price of being a wholesale direct access customer at 25% below the California greenhouse gas emissions. So you take those four essentials of customer demand plus the ability of smaller and smaller technologies to have the same efficiency and the same price points, why wouldn't you do it? Thank you. Thank you, Byron. Okay. We always save the best for last. So Susanna is now going to tell us about the Big Bang having to do with the natural ecosystem. And I've heard her talk. There's some neat stuff she's going to tell you. Well, first of all, um, I'm also tremendously honored to be invited, and especially because I'm not talking about any kind of new invention. After all, trees have already been invented. So this saves a lot of time. You don't have to, you know, and while there certainly is a valley of death around forestry, um, on the other hand, there's also a great deal of salvation with it as well. Well, um, I want to keep us up on current events here. And, of course, this is Patricia that we all um, have seen uh, and, and experienced, actually, the icky humidity of the last few days for us Southern Californians, our little tendrils of Patricia. But across the uh, Pacific, um, there's another story going on. <clears throat> and the, the uh, I mean, I, I thought, oh, but this is such an attractive person. I can't really put this on now after hearing TV, but it's too late. Um, in any case, what we have in Indonesia right now is an extraordinary dynamic of deforestation, which is causing um, massive haze over Southeast Asia. Yes, it's a beautiful set of embers. Now I'm like so traumatized from teeny, I don't know what to do with the rest of my PowerPoint. But anyway, I'll just try and go forward. Uh, you know, soldiering on, as it were. Uh, however, some of these are, are sort of less attractive given the level of haze. And this is, of course, cause, there are some sort of, oh, well, we'll just have a few air filtration places but, and a few clinics, but this hardly uh, matches the population of Kalimantan, for example. And the other thing is, uh, oh, well, just take people on boats and... Uh, float them somewhere where the haze isn't. This doesn't really have the air of a really practical solution, but you can see that people are really, uh, fortunately he's still smoking, so he might not notice that the haze is so big. <laughs> but in any case, we, we continue forward. Um, but you can see even in urban areas as opposed to rural areas where they're actually burning, this is causing extraordinary difficulties. Planes can't fly. Even the tragedy of the president of Indonesia flying to Kalimantan, he couldn't land because of the visibility problems. So we might want to say, well, maybe this is just a little local thing and what do we care anyway? But what you can see here is that these fires are generating enough emissions that they're greater than the U.S. emissions. So the point really about this is that it's important that we do what we do, but perhaps on a certain level it's not entirely about us. But also when you look at these kinds of dynamics, one is, at least I hear the echo, <laughs> perhaps not, perhaps you don't have this problem, but I have the echo of Marlena Dietrich speaking to Orson Welles in that fabulous movie, <laughs> A Touch of Evil, where she says to him, future, you have no future. Your future is all used up. So when you see these kinds of things and the massive dynamics that they entail, 
one might um, hear that little line of Marlena's. However, I um, also spend a lot of time in Brazil where people are really kind of cheery in spite in the face of massive difficulties. And so let me um, switch a little bit to another story. Now, we have a sort of, as my environmental humanist friends would say, a narrative of declension about uh, tropical forests in the new world. Now, what's interesting about this is, of course, you can see those red hot spots and you go, oh yeah, that's deforestation. But you might not be so aware of how much blue there is. And the blue is forest recovery. The red is really the expansion of the soybean and corn and sugarcane world. So those are for biofuels. They're for feeding animals um, for the most part. And uh, um, it's important to realize also when we look at these kinds of things and we think about them, to remember, at least in the case of Brazil, that this was a, a place that has something like 90% of its energy has historically been from um, hydro sources. It was also the first place of the bio-renewable car fuels, which were from sugarcane. It does help to have grown sugarcane for 500 years and have a really good sugarcane lobby who would like you to switch from petroleum to sugarcane. So there's always are these political economies that we might want to spend some time looking at. But the point that I want to talk about is really we're sort of looking at forests lost and found. So what I'd like to explore with you very quickly here is a rather unusual dynamic. One is, this is my favorite river, the Purus River, and uh, it winds around. It's in, the, it's in the upper Amazon. And what you might not know from looking at it, it is this, this was one of the most intensely, it was like the heart of industrial globalization during the rubber period. Well, you wouldn't have that, you wouldn't have that sense of it right now. And it really was uh, only about 100 years ago that this place was met quite extensively deforested and quite extensively degraded. So it proves um, the adage of one of my major professors as I was uh, in graduate school at Berkeley, who said, in forestry as it happened, who said, you know, Susanna, you could get into a lather about deforestation, but trees grow. So that's one thing to keep in mind with the rest of the story I'm about to tell you. Um, if you look at the de deforestation in Amazonia, of course you'll see um, you know, the forests and flames and everything. But usually what they're not telling you is that actually not just in the Brazilian Amazon, but in all the circum-Amazonian countries, there's a little uptick right now in Peru, but in any case, um, what you see is a rather surprising decline in deforestation. Now, when I look at this, I say, hmm, this doesn't look like individual behaviors. This looks like structural change. So what are we seeing here? And if you look at the case of Brazil, one of the things that you're seeing very strongly is that in 2004, you looked like you were having the, uh, the upward tick forever and the end of the, and many people were predicting the end of the rainforest. I certainly would not have taken the bet had someone offered it to say, well, do you think in a, a little more than a decade that the rate of deforestation will be cut by 80%? I would have said, too much ayahuasca for you, bub. You, you know, no, no, I'm not taking that bet. But I would have been a dope 
to not take it because this is indeed, in fact, what happened. So how do we explain these two graphs? Well, um, first of all, you do have to look at structural change to some degree. And part of this involved, um, and I love this, uh, this is Raoni, a, a Kayapo um, um, a chief who was working on the legislation for the Constitutional Convention in Brazil in 1988, just that time when Jim Hansen was um, screaming about everything being a mess. So they developed a new constitution which was quite inclusive, including things like, and, and people like um, Chico Mendes. So what you had there were social movements involving traditional people that were written and integrated into their constitutions. So we might sort of imagine what that what these kinds of things uh, might have. And it's important to realize that it's still early days in sort of post-authoritarian um, nation building in Latin America since um, really the, we're looking, the last peace accords were signed in 1996. So it's, if it were the U.S., we'd still be in the 18th century. So the point is that you had a lot of social movements engaged in stopping deforestation. Now, they could say a few things about climate, and they could say a few things about microclimate, but what was really important to them were another set of issues, which had to do with tenurial questions, it had to do with autonomy, it had to do with livelihoods. So, um, just to make sure also that we don't end up simplifying the narrative, Li Fong came and said, Susanna, this is many two words on that, on those, you know, slides. No one's going to read them. Well, I don't expect you to read them. I'm just sort of throwing them at you as sort of a thing to give you a sense of the kinds of processes that go into bending that curve. We sort of make it seem like it's a little bit, you know, if we just could just think harder or something, it would all work, or maybe say it better. But in fact, there's a lot of uh, uh, things operating at every scale, from the most local to the international, and also between uh, accords of states and accords of nation states, as well as popular political movements. The thing that I would want to say is that it's important to have legal mechanisms, um, subnational agreements were really important in terms of turning that thing around so that you could have uh, the state of Amazonas agreeing with the state of uh, California uh, making a treaty about sort of future comportment vis-a-vis -vis, uh, questions of climate. There's technology in here, of course, with monitoring and so on, but there's also a kind of social responsibility as well. The other thing I would argue, too, that we haven't spoken about too much in terms of these things are questions of livelihoods, of questions of green markets, questions of environmental services that seem to have sort of gotten lost in the story about mitigation and adaptation. Um, the other thing that I think is also important is that there are a lot of policies that went into place such as the Bolsa Familia, which is a family support thing that meant that people didn't necessarily have to sit and chop down forest um, all the time to ensure their food, um, and what's called the Sesta Basica, which is a basic bunch of food that was given to people. But the point here is that there are a lot of other kinds of spillovers, and a lot of the structural changes, which I'm going to go to in a minute, 
And the policies were not necessarily climate policies, but they had, poli they had climate spillovers and very important ones. If you're going from something where the Brazilian deforestation was really about 21% of global emissions in, 19, in 2004, and you drop that by 80%, in a little more than a decade, we have to say that of the, la the interventions in the last decade, that has to be one of the most important climate mitigation uh, dynamics that's occurred. The next thing that also I want to recommend that you pay attention to, because in the tropics we get so caught up in the sort of preservationist language, is these policies were formatted for inhabited environments. So this is not just a story about set-asides and forests sucking down carbon quietly by themselves <laughs> off in the upper Amazon, but rather in uh, engagement in uh, things, I hate the term socio-natures, but this is really one of these things which is an outcome of both the natural environment and human agency, and also non-human agency as well. So there's another thing, uh, place that I work a lot. It's the sort of Malthusian nightmare of, El, of El Salvador, which should be a big total mess because it's so densely populated and everything. Well, this again is another sort of decadal story where basically it goes from um, 19, uh, uh, 1996, which is the sort of red, you know, acne-colored country, and then it turns into this delightful green thing later on. Now, there's clearly deforestation going on, and there's also vegetation change. But the point here is that even very densely populated places, and this is densely populated and continues to be densely populated, even such places can have quite a bit of forest cover. So how do we explain this? Because, after all, we are so accustomed to Malthus, it's hard to stop, you know? Anyway, um, first of all, big structural changes in the economies. I'm not going to go into this in too, in too much detail, but essentially you go from being an agrarian economy to being, whether one likes it or not, a remittance economy and a, um, you know, a, 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 some manufacture and tourism and other kinds of services, banking services for the most part. So one of the things is that changes these things are structural change. So one of the things is to think about how you can integrate climate questions into international development, although that wasn't part of these stories by any means, by the way. Um, what was part of these stories is the age of migration. Um, we're looking at about a billion people uh, migrating both nationally and internationally every year. So we are in a world in motion. Um, there's a lot of money that goes with migration, and while we sort of think about how expensive it is to go from Syria to Germany, um, one of the dynamics of migration that we see globally, uh, once you move out of those war zones, is that the flow of money is going, a large flow of money, now close to $700 billion, is going from my, uh, places uh, that receive migrants to non-migrant places. Um, oh, I see this light is going on. So I'm going to just go really fast. Anyway, so the point being that this is the size of a, about the size of a, a of a, a European country, and it's vastly changed the dynamics of these countries as well. The other thing is urbanization. It's much more linked to rural areas. It's much more complex. 
It's got multi-sided households. It's important to realize that what we're seeing is not just with this structural change that people forget forests. 1.4 billion people are still forest-dependent, but that the dynamics of these economies have shifted. So I think um, this sort of says it all. Once you start to get remittances, you see less forest clearing, a lot more forest resurgence. One more thing about this, because with this forest recovery, you get most of your biomass accumulation in the first 20 or 25 years. So that actually we're having a very dynamic moment in global climates, even though we don't realize we're being incredibly helped by a lot of structural dynamics and social dynamics that both have slowed deforestation and that have contributed to forest resurgence. And management makes a difference here. I won't go into detail. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm merely showing you what a really great agroforestry system looks like and why we might think about these as being central to our future as well as the future of lots of tropical people. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.